Hi, this is Ginger Avery again from the Alabama Association for Justice, and welcome back to our next edition of our podcast, Ex Parte Communication. Let me start by giving a shout out to one of our fellows, Forge Consulting. You know, Forge Consulting started with the fellows the very year we started the program. We've been growing together for almost two decades. And just like our fellows program has grown, so has the services that Forge Consultings provide. Under the leadership of Corey Phillips, they do amazing work to help your clients. We believe in Forge. You should believe in them too. So next time you have a case, please think of them and give them a call. Corey Phillips and his team at Forge Consulting. Hello, everybody. I am your good friend and host, Gavin King, and welcome back to Ex Parte Communications, the official podcast of the Alabama Association for Justice, a podcast for Alabama trial lawyers, about Alabama trial lawyers, by Alabama trial lawyers. And I'm sitting here in Montgomery, Alabama, um, at the Alabama Association for Justice's headquarters um, with a good friend of mine, Justin Owen, who is going to be speaking with us today. Welcome to the podcast, Justin. Thank you, Gavin. I appreciate you having me on. It's good to be here. Uh, Before we get our conversation going, um, I want you to tell our listeners a little bit about your background, your path to the plaintiff's bar, and your practice now. Okay, so I grew up here in Montgomery uh, on LeBron Avenue over in Old Cloverdale. I went to high school here at Montgomery Academy. I graduated. I went to the University of Virginia uh, in Charlottesville where I became an English major and graduated with a BA in English um, and then moved on and worked in Washington, D.C. in politics for two years and then moved back down south, um, took my LSAT and went to law school at Cumberland School of Law at Sanford University in Birmingham and graduated there in 2009 and then uh, went to work in Birmingham at a law firm called Waldrop Stewart and Kendrick. Uh, very good multi-specialty practice. They did a lot of uh, various defense work. Uh, in addition to doing some plaintiff's work there, I had the um, really the blessing of learning from a lot of different lawyers, at least 14 or 15 that had many, many different types of practices and practice areas. Um, I kind of became a, a jack of all trades, but it was all very litigation heavy. Um, In that, I was allowed the opportunity to kind of get into some appellate work in addition to working up cases and and trying them, um, both on the plaintiffs and the defense side. And um, then I went on and was hired by a very good plaintiff's firm, Goldstitch & Associates in in Birmingham, and um, worked for them for for 10 years and really, really enjoyed that. Enjoyed working up that practice and helping build that firm um, with Mr. Goldstitch and my other partners there. And then um, after I turned 40, I decided it was time for the next chapter of my life. And if you're, you're a good-looking 40 man. Yeah, man, don't worry. It's all, it's all rotten underneath. But, um, <laughs> but um, you know, went on and, and joined two really good friends who are really, really accomplished litigators, one from the defense side, Red Owens, and another from the plaintiff's bar. No relation? No relation. Okay. No, he has an S on the end of his That's name, right. and I do not. Although he did marry uh, one of my closest friends uh, and lifelong That's friends. That's right. She's from Montgomery. Yeah, Gunner. Yeah. Um, Gunner and I grew up going to church together down the street at St. John's Episcopal, and we went to high school together. But um, Red Owens and then uh, Nate Vanderveer, who's originally from Charlotte and went to Auburn University and he worked at various plaintiff's firms, including um, with me at Goldstitch and Associates. And so um, there's three of us there, and it's a kind of a plaintiff's heavy practice with some transactional work um, involved and the occasional crazy estate dispute or something interesting <laughs> like that. But um, really, we've been at that since April, and, and it's really been a blessing, and we've been 
um, blessed with a lot of success and really, really enjoy working with one another. Yeah, that's fantastic. I've enjoyed getting to know you. Uh, we met at Midwinter, I guess, uh, over a year ago now. And um, at that time, I guess it's before you started your new practice, um, and I was talking about some work that I had done with Rhett when he was on the defense side. Oh, yeah. Um, and got a lot of respect for Rhett. We um, have worked, worked several uh, cases against one another, uh, and so now I'm glad that we've got him on, on the right side of the fence, the right side of justice, as I like to say. Um, and so really excited about the work y'all are doing there uh, and, and know that there's going to be some, um, some quality work added to our, our bar because of it. One of the things that I admire about you um, is your versatility. Uh, you're obviously a, a fantastic and accomplished trial lawyer, uh, but you also are, are a sought-after brief writer and appellate lawyer. Talk to me about some of the practical differences between uh, your appellate advocacy and your trial advocacy. Sure. So there, there are definitely differences between them, and they also go hand in hand. Um, as far as you know, being a trial attorney, a litigator, whether you're defense or plaintiff side, um, you're always focused on your themes, um, on, on developing your themes within a case. The storyline is very important, and also trying as that storyline evolves to adapt to that, whether it's the evidence and the facts that take you there, or whether you rethink a case somewhere in the middle of it and believe there's a better pathway to success for your clients. Um, you focus on the results um, as you do with appellate work, but it's a different oriented result. You want to either have them settle a case or you want to go to trial and win and be successful, which then of course brings in often the appellate advocacy part of it. Um, what I always notice the differences is, and I've seen this because I've had the pleasure of attending oral argument and watching other lawyers argue in front of the Alabama Supreme Court and the Alabama Court of Civil Appeals, um, is you can tell the difference between a seasoned appellate lawyer um, and a truly phenomenal trial lawyer in how they argue the issues in front of an appellate court. Um, and uh, it's not really better one way or the other, but the trial lawyers often focus on um, you know, the heartstrings pulling and emotional aspects of their case and the injuries and the severity of them and, and the themes that they worked up a case that they tried to a jury. But um, the appellate lawyers focus more, they'll touch upon that briefly to help the justices understand what it is, but then they immediately go to an attack and use their time to directly address the, the few select issues that the justices are either anticipated to be most interested in or have made it very clear that they're most interested in. Yeah, uh, not necessarily an appellate argument, but I think maybe one of the first arguments on the law that I had in front of a judge, that was one of the, just the mistakes that I made, and the judge looked at me, I won't call the judge's name, but uh, judge in a rural area uh, just said, save it for the jury, Mr. King. Um, and I think sometimes when I've been, watched appellate arguments from really, really good trial lawyers, uh, sometimes um, they can they can kind of miss uh, the most important parts of kind of the technical argument, because they're focused on kind of the meta argument, which is a good thing to be worried about, um, the narrative, uh, but sometimes that's not really what the court is, is listening for. Um, what are some of the pitfalls that you think that seasoned trial lawyers fall into when stepping into an appellate argument? Um, often the pitfalls occur before you ever get to the appeal. Um, the best phone calls I ever get from colleagues across the state, um, and sometimes from other states as well, 
is when they're still involved in the underlying case, whether it's a post-judgment proceeding or they, they smell or feel that they're getting set up for either a mandamus, an interlocutory appeal, or some sort of issue that is being stacked into the record. Um, the pitfalls is that people often, by the time they reach the point of an appeal or whether it's imminent and there's not really anything you can do to put as much evidence into the record to be favorable to you is they haven't necessarily gotten all the evidence and the arguments they need to in front of the judge. Um, it's, a, it's a give and take in terms of strategy, understanding that, well, you don't want to give them a roadmap to all of your arguments sometimes because oral argument is very important when you have a hearing and being able to really put one to someone in there or bring something up that may not explicitly be in your brief um, is very useful. That being said, what the uh, appeals courts look at often and all they had to look at sometimes is the is the very record that's in front of them. What's been written down, uh, not even a transcript in some cases, um, especially in rural counties, as you know, um, I've been in, in trials where the um, court, court reporter did not uh, transcribe <laughs> opening or closing arguments uh, or jury uh, instruction discussions um, because that's just what they had done for 30 years. And um, of course, I got into the appeal and um, was very... Uh, alarmed to learn that I lacked the crucial evidence that I needed and I had not filed a supplemental brief or anything in the end, just assuming the transcript would protect me. Yeah. Um, that happened once and then it has never happened again since then. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's, it's getting your evidence into the record, um, making sure that your arguments are put in front of the court and are in the record so that if an appeal does arise, you have everything possible at your disposal to thwart the efforts to um, defeat you on the appeal. That's really good stuff. Um, I One of the joys in my work at Beasley Allen is I get uh, to work closely with our clerks. Uh, and from time to time, we take our clerks on field trips. And one such field trip this summer uh, was just up the hill from our office in Montgomery to uh, the Alabama Supreme Court, where we had the joy of watching you argue uh, in front of the, the Supreme Court. And I've told you this, and I'll say it again, uh, you were fantastic. It was great uh, for our clerks uh, to get to watch you. And I, I got to feel pretty cool because I knew the guy down there, um, something like knowing a celebrity. But before we talk about your argument in that case, uh, just tell us a little bit about that case. So uh, that was a medical malpractice case. And um, I'm not going to get too much into the weeds of the details of it, but it involved a, a, a heart surgical procedure um, and some alleged complications that occur arose either in the immediate post-operative period or during the operation itself. Um, but when the case was filed and when service or process was trying to be effected on the defendants um, by the plaintiff and the plaintiff's lawyer, um, it was right at the beginning of when COVID hit in the spring and early summer of 2020. And so all the courthouses had been shut down for months and there were very strict procedures and no physical contact um, requirements and rules and regulations in place. Uh, they varied sometimes from courthouse to courthouse, but the Alabama Supreme Court um, and the presiding judges, of course, in the various judicial districts had issued their own orders that tried to give direction to that. Um, and they were largely consistent with one another. But there was difficulty serving one of the physicians in his practice because the practice had, had moved but it was still listed at the address it was with Alabama Secretary of State business entity database, which is yeah. usually where um, when you sue somebody and want to get them served process, that's, that's, where, you go. that's where you go. Yeah, <laughs> it should be the most reliable, right? And um, he had difficulty serving the individual physician and his practice, and that went on for months and months and months. And then eventually about 
nine or ten months into the case, uh, you know, it, it had gone through the, the initial lawyer withdrew. The lawyer who worked with me and hired me to work the appeal with him had taken it over and realized, oh, service was never affected. And so he raised the issue with the court at his first status conference. And um, and then he immediately attempted to affect service, and the record showed that the second he got involved in the case, he and he learned that that hadn't happened and reviewed the record. So the challenge was under what's called Rule 4B, which um, is sort of the time limit for service requirement. It's a, it's, it was a total procedural issue, but it had to do with discretionary decisions by the trial court and how much dis, how much discretion a trial court has to extend the time limit for a plaintiff to serve a defendant when that time limit has gone beyond the set 120 days that's listed in the rule. Uh, the uh, defendant health care providers argued on appeal and took it up on a, what's called a Rule 5 interlocutory appeal that um, that discretion is not unbridled. They kept repeating that, and they said there has to be some sort of guidelines or parameters um, to instruct trial courts what is or is not beyond their discretion with respect to extending the time limit for service. And they made a very legitimate argument that no appellate decision from the Court of Civil Appeals or the Alabama Supreme Court had directly addressed the argument and issue that they were raising. Mm -hmm. Uh, That being said, Rule 4B of the Alabama Rules of Civil Procedure comes directly from Rule 4B of, or Rule 4M of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. And there have been slews and decades worth of decisions by federal district courts both in Alabama, um, the appellate court in the 11th Circuit, and other district courts in other states that have addressed that discretion and the circumstances that will justify a discretionary extension of the time limit for service. And so that was the argument there. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about, uh, before we get to the just the argument itself, and um, we talk a little bit about that, what does preparation look like for you when you're getting ready uh, to argue before, in this case, the Supreme Court of Alabama. So it's a little, it's a lot of anticipation um, because when they issue oral argument, unfortunately, they don't say we're having oral argument, and these are this is exactly what we're interested in. <laughs> um, and as you can imagine, there were at least four or five um, very strong arguments made by the defendants in their uh, appellate brief that we, of course, directly opposed and rebutted. And you try to choose which ones um, would have made the court so interested that they wanted to entertain oral argument to. Uh, aid them um, from an oral perspective in addition to what's been submitted and written. Um, we didn't ask for oral argument. We thought the briefs were sufficient. We thought we had done a really good job um, opposing their arguments and that it might be denied summarily, which we asked for. And we actually asked for the appeal to be dismissed because it was an improper Rule 5 interlocutory appeal. Yeah. Um, but um, when it comes to preparation for it, uh, you know, honestly, I, I've been a lawyer for over 13 years. I probably haven't been nervous arguing in front of a judge until that time for maybe a decade, maybe a little bit less than that. And I was extremely nervous in the week. Couldn't tell. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, because I guess the adrenaline took over. <laughs> but, um, you know, and, and I sat there and I, I had pictures of the justices. Even though I know the justices' names and can kind of put the names to the faces, it's very important to address people by their name. The second a question is asked, you know, to respond to them and let them know you know who they are. Um, it's important to study kind of what their positions have been on the issues that are involved in your appeal, if, if they've expressed any uh, commentary in other opinions or in concurrences or dissents. And so it's trying to get a feel for how they might be thinking and, and leaning one way or the other on the decision and why they're interested in it. 
uh, and also making sure you know as much as you can who they are and that you're responding very directly to the questions they ask. Um, you want to maintain your theme, but you need to answer their questions because they'll just let it that you know out loud on the record, well, that doesn't really answer my question. And it's very dissatisfying, as you can imagine, when a judge yeah. asks you a question and you don't answer it. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, well, let, let's turn to the argument itself. I, I'm going to talk about, um, you know, just some of the things I noticed, and, and hopefully you can shed some light on it. But one of the things that I noticed we had that day, it seemed like a very, very um, vocal bench. Uh, they asked a lot of questions. Um, how do you read into questions when you're being asked questions? So, um, you know, in your bank of knowledge in a case, you, you, you want to know kind of how to address both sides of how an issue might be viewed. Um, there, were, there was one or two that sort of threw me off because on their face they seemed so simple, but underneath them there was a lot of meaning for understanding as to how I would answer it that um, the justices wanted to know. I remember Justice um, Brad Mendham uh, asked a question that on its face I had to pause and think about it for a minute um, because it sort of cut directly against my argument the way he asked it. But I think what he wanted to, to know, and you, I can't read minds, um, because, but he didn't ask a follow-up, was how, how my argument would be you know, in response to that if someone said, well, you know, your argument really is saying that that discretion is limited and that shouldn't we you know, indicate that there is a parameter and, and set guidelines and do all of that. And I said, well, Your Honor, that's, that's actually not what our position is. But the reason why that our position is contrary to that is because to ask courts to justify in writing and in orders every single time they exercise their discretion, the already heavy workload mm -hmm. that the uh, appellate courts in our state have, and you can imagine the backlog that exists, would be exponentially increased yeah. and judicial economy would go out the window. And I, I remember that answer and yeah. I thought it was so good because Justice Mendham was a trial court judge. Yep. And that's an answer that I thought, man, he, he gets that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's probably something that you're thinking about too, not just the names of these justices, but also the backgrounds and experiences of those justices. Because that, that question, at least from him and our other um, Supreme Court justices who have been on the trial bench, you know, questions like that carry probably a little more weight. Yeah, I was very pleased by how many of the justices asked questions. It may have been all but one or two. Um, in fact, I think Justice Parker and Justice Shaw um, didn't ask any because um, the other seven justices asked so many separately. Uh, I remember Justice Stewart asked a question. Justice Wise and I had a lengthy exchange. I think that I engaged Justice Bolin related to a question he had asked the opposing defense lawyer during his oral argument because I wanted that question to go truly answered and for the court to understand what our position would be. Justice Bowles' question was to the defense counsel, is this really the case that you want us to hear when it comes to determining the discretion afforded trial courts under Rule 4B? Um, <laughs> the defense attorney didn't really say yes, and he didn't really say no, and I immediately stood up and I said, you know, in fact, Justice Bowles, you asked a question, and I wanted to answer that even though it wasn't directed to me. No, if you're on the defendant's position, I would say for them, they don't want this to be the case because all of the great weight of the law and stare decisis that would apply to this case in any court that's addressed this type of issue, whether it was an Alabama Federal District Court, the 11th Circuit, or even you know slight commentary from this court and the Court of Civil Appeals is, that discretion doesn't have limitations. It is at the discretion of the trial court, and trial courts are in the best position to judge when and when not to exercise that discretion. Yeah. How, 
just how malleable is your argument as it relates, you know, thinking about questions that are being asked, uh, even last minute preparation, how, how much are you moving or willing to move parts of your argument or change the direction of your argument based on new information that you see at the last minute or um, new questions that are presented? Well, um, I remember that when I was preparing for this particular oral argument, I had in my mind just to charge head on and attack the direct merits of the issues that were raised um, by the opposing counsel in, in their interlocutory appeal. Um, I had a brief discussion with a colleague who's sort of a mentor of mine and asked him what his thoughts were about that. And um, he said, you know, the more I think about it, what you described, this isn't really a proper appeal at all. Your first argument out of the gates, if I'm you and if they'll let you do it is, this just needs to be dismissed. This is not a proper Rule 5 interlocutory appeal, he says. And then they're probably going to ask you, well, wouldn't it, couldn't we just decide to hear it on mandamus? And at which point you would say, uh, this court has the ability to change its position on how it hears an argument, whether it categorizes as a Rule 5 interlocutory appeal or uh, a mandamus petition. But then the standard of review would be even far more stringent under mandamus than under Rule 5. And that actually had me shift my outline, that argument was going to be about third or fourth if I got to it mm. in the 20 minutes they give you. And I moved it to first, and then I made it a consistent theme when I was responding to the questions and then addressing the arguments that had been raised by the opposing counsel. So yes, I mean, that, and that was the day before the argument. Yeah. yeah. I remember you saying in that argument, I think it was in response to a question but I actually read that in a case this morning or something to that effect. Uh, is that true? Did you, I mean, was that something you had seen that morning? Uh, yes, it had actually. Wow. And I mean, I'm trying to remember exactly <laughs> what the issue was, but I had, had noticed that something that they raised, I, I anticipated that the defense counsel would raise in their argument. He brought it up. And of course I, I had an entire standard on it and a, and a wonderful paragraph from an opinion I found that morning. That was at uh, five o'clock. A really <laughs> impressive line and even more impressive now that I know that it's, that it's true. Um, this is such a great conversation, but I, I do want to move on to some other things and make sure, sure. Uh, that we, uh, we have time for everything. There, there's so much um, that happens uh, in our Supreme Court, and there are cases that we all pay attention to and some that we miss, um, and time would fail us to consider all the important things that are happening or have happened over the last couple years in our Supreme Court. Um, but I did want to want to pick your brain about um, one particular case that I think um, might not have gone as noticed, um, but I do think bears us talking about, and that's um, Abbott v. Uh, Mobile County Board of Health. Yes. Um, yeah. Tell me a little bit about that case. So uh, it was a mandamus proceeding on a motion to dismiss under Rule 12b-6 for failure to state a claim. The case was um, what I would call a brand of the opioid crisis cases. Um, and within it, there were many claims made. The, the plaintiffs in that case were actually the Mobile County Board of Health and then a uh, family primary care family health clinic that is affiliated with the Mobile County Board of Health. And they brought the case against Abbott Laboratories, um, as well as a number of the other defendants involved sure. in the marketing and distribution of the particular opioid OxyContin, which um, people are very well aware of the destructive effects. It's been all over the news, and um, the the amount of uh, 
fraud or conspiracy or just the scheme and plan um, to enrich the companies and their executives to a, a very insane degree, to be honest, uh, at the expense of the health um, of the populace of our country yeah. and to devastate families and ruin lives and put people in their graves. And so the, 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 well, the Mobile County Board of Health def plaintiffs said, you know, they filed a public nuisance claim, negligence, wantonness, mm -hmm. fraud, and it was related to a lot of the marketing and everything you've heard. Um, the Abbott Laboratories and marketing defendants took it up on appeal. They filed a motion to dismiss and said, well, everything you talk about in, and I think one of the paragraphs they reference is paragraph 918 or paragraph <laughs> 912. So it's a lengthy, incredibly yeah. detailed complaint. Um, they said, well, everything you referenced in the complaint related to our client, Abbott Laboratories, actually all stopped in 2006. And so the statute of limitations and or the statute of repose has run and you aren't allowed to bring these claims on the face of your complaint. They need to be thrown out. And so... Um, a judge who is now retired in Mobile County, who's an excellent judge, I've been in front of him, Jay York, denied the motion to dismiss because um, there had been allegations um, that it was a continuing tort. Sure. There had been allegations that the, the details of the conspiracy and the conduct and what was going on and the facts of the case as they became ultimately known and pleaded in the lawsuit could not really truly be fleshed out due to the fraudulent concealment of the defendants in that case. Yeah. There was one of the grounds within it, and I highlighted it last night, um, but they said, no, you know, it should survive. The statute of limitations was due to be told um, and extended because there was no way for us and our clients to ever know the true extent of this or the nature of it such that a lawsuit of, the, of this kind could be brought. And so it went up on appeal on mandamus. And um, the Alabama Supreme Court actually reversed the decision by the trial court in Mobile um, that had denied the motion to dismiss and said, no, the 12B6 motion to dismiss should have been granted. And then they took head on the three main arguments that the Mobile County Health Department defendants had, uh, plaintiffs had brought up. And um, in doing so, it was a very detailed um, and analysis of the complaint, which has to be because on a 12B6, that's sure. what you're looking at. Sure. Um, but in a way, the reversal of the trial court's denial of the motion to dismiss was based upon either the complaint being too specific or almost too specific in some allegations, but then not specific enough with respect to allegations related to the fraudulent concealment. And so um, they threw that case out and, and they actually looked beyond um, the complaint itself a little bit and considered a lot of arguments related to other lawsuits that they took judicial notice of that and investigations, uh, published works that had talked about the opioid crisis and how the pharmaceutical companies and marketing uh, defendants and distributing defendants had been in cahoots with one another, so to speak. And they said, all of this at the latest was out in 2016. You filed this lawsuit in 2019. Your statute of limitations is two years. You waited too late, and it should have been dismissed. Hmm. I know. Uh, so a lot, lot of things coming about there. And, of course, I, I've done uh, work at, down at Beasley Island on um, the opioid case involving the state of Alabama and the state of Georgia's claims against uh, similar manufacturers and distributors, um, but also do quite a bit of environmental work, toxic exposure work. Um, and at least on its face, um, this case 
scares me a little bit uh, because those often deal with the idea of a continuous tort um, where there may have been a bad act um, that um, it wasn't apparent at that moment that um, it could have poisoned a community or a water source or um, the environment um, but that eventually, whether it's because it's a forever chemical or now we can test for it or what have you, it becomes apparent that it can, and that is the case. Um, and that could very well be uh, years after um, the last, quote, bad act. And that, to me, um, you can give me your thoughts, that to me is at least a caution uh, when I read the Abbott decision. Yeah, and they actually touch upon that when they discussed... Um, that there is a comment in the in the Abbott Laboratory's opinion there that says the ignorance of the accrual or existence of a tort or a wrong is not an excuse for tolling the statute of limitations, and that sort of draws upon toxic tort cases and continuous exposure cases. One that comes to mind is uh, Ex Parte Griffin, which is one I bet you've come across many yeah. times. Yeah where uh, retired uh, Justice Bernard Harwood, who is a, a good friend and a, and a colleague, uh, I've worked with him, and I've had to work against <laughs> him sometimes, <laughs> yeah. But Bernard and I, he's even mediated cases for me over the years. Okay. We've, we've enjoyed a really great academical and intellectual relationship. And he penned the opinion, or it may have been a special concurrence to that opinion, where they talked about what a plaintiff should or shouldn't know. What are the indications or facts that indicate that at this time or around this time period, they should have known they that some sort of wrong or tort had been committed because it was making them sick or uh, injuring them in some way or they were losing money. And they focused, the court focused on that in this Abbott Laboratories case when it had to do with all of the uh, wealth of published information related to the pharmaceutical industry, Purdue Pharma, um, you know, Abbott Laboratories and everybody involved in this opioid crisis is what it often is referred to. And it's, it's understanding what is reasonable to assume that usually a lay person who is injured or has, has something bad happen to them should or shouldn't know under the circumstances presented. And the Alabama Supreme Court in this Abbott Laboratories case um, took a particular notice of the fact, well, you're a county health department and you're a family health clinic and your health care providers and the people who run your facilities, y'all should be or are aware of these. These are things that are published to you as public health entities and um, you should have known about these things. And if you were going to file this lawsuit, you didn't need to wait on what's called the ARCOS, A-R-C-O-S um, statement that had a lot of the details of what really went down um, in this whole opioid scheme that was going on with Big Pharma. And they put the onus on them. Um, it was almost a, a heightened sense of duty just because of the type of facility sure. and plaintiff they were and party they were. And so maybe uh, not, potentially not, or at least an argument in the future is if you do have maybe an individual who's less sophisticated, um, maybe not the same kind of onus put on them. but. I think the thing I think about is just from a, a policy perspective, we never we never want um, a policy that might encourage um, bad behavior and fraudulent concealment from a defendant. Um, and not that I would, um, but the fear is for me that a defendant might determine if I've done something bad but nobody knows about it yet, I just need to make sure nobody knows about it for the next two years. Yeah. Uh, and in an ideal world, that's not... Um, the kind of policy that at least I want to see. Um, but 
thank you for, for, for walking us through that. That's, um, that's helpful for me. Uh, and maybe one of these days we'll, uh, that, that, that issue will come back up. Yeah, I think uh, the rule of thumb is if you're going to plead fraudulent concealment, at least that was a big one at the end. I thought, honestly, it was the best shot that the um, appellees had in that case. You need to plead it very, very specifically as to why the information wasn't discovered, when it was discovered, which they did, they did plead when it was discovered, and how is it specifically that it was concealed and the acts and conduct that were taken to do that, and also... Um, why was it that you were prevented from discovering that information, whether from the due to the concealment of the defendants or, or from other available sources out there? And that goes into exactly what you said, which is maybe discussing the sophistication of the parties. Um, you know, most people don't have medical training, and hmm. um, and I, I agree with you too. the The outcome in that case um, can have, I guess, more societal effects and behavioral effects from a public policy standpoint that might not be really what everybody is looking for and is in the best interest of um, the citizens of our state for sure. Sure. Well, before we go to our final segment, we want to take a brief pause to hear from our friends at the Alabama Association for Justice. Let me talk to you a minute about one of our partner firms, the firm of Marsh, Reichert and Bryan. You know, they have been a partner from the beginning of the program. And not only are they partners, They've been an integral part of our leadership and of our past presidents. David Marsh was a president of this organization. Jeff Reichert was a president of this organization. Rip Andrews was a president of this organization. And this year, Derek Mills is in our officer's rotation. One thing I do know, if Nat Bryan had not left us so soon, he would have also been a past president of this association. We are truly blessed to have the firm of Marsh, Rocket and Bryan with us. We are better people, we are a better organization because of their participation. So I wanna thank you individually, each member, for what you do for your firm and for what you do for our association, but more importantly, what you do for justice in Alabama. This is James Abel, the editor of Ex Parte Communications, and I'd just like to plug that we will be at the ALAJ Winter Summit February 15th through the 17th at the Grand Bohemian Hotel in Mountain Brook, Alabama, during recording sessions for Ex Parte Communications. If you would like to be a part of one of our recording sessions, please reach out to me at james at alabamajustice.org or find my contact information below in the description of every Ex Parte Communications episode. Our final segment on the show is my favorite, and we call it uh, The War Room. So we ask all of our guests to come with their best war story as a trial lawyer. Uh, and so I'll invite our listeners to join us in The War Room with Justin. Ah, well, The War Room is a fun segment now, isn't it? <laughs> um, I thought about that a lot, and that we talked a little bit about being a, a trial attorney and a litigator and also appellate work. And so my war story comes from a... Uh, a situation that involves a little bit of both. Uh, we had a case that we were working on several years ago uh, up in Walker County where um, it involved, a, it was a medical negligence case, but it involved uh, allegations that a young boy who was three years and two days old um, had gone to the hospital and it was alleged he had signs and symptoms of meningitis and um, that he was improperly treated or they failed to treat or delay treatment and he was sent home. He went back a day later 
he was sent home again, and then he had to be rushed to Children's Hospital within, I think, 22 hours or 24 hours um, because he was suffering a massive brain injury and, mm-hmm. and he had full-blown meningitis um, all throughout his, his brain. And in that case, it, it litigated, I think, for six or seven years until it actually made it to trial. And there was one entry in the medical records where it was very nondescript. It almost looked like an electronic medical records kind of data you know, notification where one witness who um, was a woman and we didn't know what she did or why she was in there, but it had the word infection in it. And we kept asking for access to view the records and there was refused and this very, um, very vehement uh, argument and fight occurred over in dispute with discovery. And we had, I think, three or four hearings where um, eventually the defendant uh, healthcare providers were ordered to produce everything related to that entry and that person and had her name on it. And so they produced it under seal, even though they weren't ordered to produce it under seal and it wasn't rule confidential and it wasn't an in-camera inspection or anything like that. And on the same day they produced it to both us and to the court, again, in sealed envelopes, uh, they filed an emergency petition for writ of mandamus with the Alabama Supreme Court and said, save us, save us. We've been ordered to produce these things and they're all quality assurance materials and they're all privileged and they're not allowed to find them. Um, we were able to prevail on that. Their petition was denied summarily without any uh, briefing other than a motion to dismiss that I filed on it because the documents that they produced when we opened the envelope were what called infection control documents. And there was actually an opinion, um, I think, from either a 2001 or a 1994 case um, involving St. Vincent's Hospital that said infection control documents are not privileged. And in, and in that case, what had happened was they just didn't produce any testimony or evidence that said they were privileged or that they fell within the purview of it and had the magical language to, to have the privilege apply. And so the entire case had been defended on the argument by the defendants that this young boy did not have meningitis at any point when he went to visit the hospital on those two occasions in three days. All of the documents they produced, quote, under seal, that really weren't produced under seal, so they weren't sealed at all, um, showed that um, all of the healthcare providers that had actually come into contact with him had received a notification from the infection control um, head at the hospital saying they needed to come and be tested for meningitis. They Good had a positive, gracious. identified, confirmed exposure to a patient with meningitis while he was in the hospital. And so everything that they had been defending the case and everything that their 22 experts had said in the case <laughs> Uh, that he didn't have meningitis was completely disproven by their own internal communications on the internal messaging system. Exactly. Oh, and the first reports of injury that they sent to the Alabama Department of Labor for their employees, of course, because they'd been exposed to a communicable disease. And so then the trial ensued and we tried that case. They tried for, that case? We tried that case wow. for 25 straight days. And um, at the end of the trial, we received a, a very, very justified verdict in that case. And um, when I asked the jurors at the end about what it was, the difference was, they said it was those documents you showed, you know, that you know, we had tried to argue to them that they hadn't been produced in the case and there were some restrictions on that. But he said, the second you showed us those on about the second or the third day of trial, um, we listened to everything else y'all said, but we just could never get past the fact that they knew and then they kept trying to lie to our faces and tell us that they didn't know. <laughs> so... Um, the rule of thumb is don't ever give up on your discovery disputes. If it takes four hearings and a mandamus petition to overcome it, 
it's probably worth it if they're fighting that hard to keep it from your eyes. Yeah, one of my um, one of my my heroes, um, who's a lawyer, um, says, and it's maybe kind of put to the opposite way, but he's always saying about defense lawyers, uh, if they ask for something, even if we've got a good reason to give it to them, uh, out, within ethical bounds, he says, I don't want them to have it. And I said, well, why don't we want to give it to him? He says, because they want it. Uh, <laughs> and I think the opposite is true. If they don't want us to have it, it's probably because we need to get it. Um, and so um, I, I try to be thinking that way all the time. Um, Justin, thank you so, so much for joining us. This has been an incredible discussion. Um, you are just a, a bright spot in the plaintiff's bar. Uh, you're extremely bright and articulate, um, and we are better um, in this state. And, and plaintiffs around the country are better because you're on our side. So I really appreciate you sitting down and talking with me today. Well, I appreciate it, Gavin. Your, your words are too kind. Um, I'm just here to work like everybody else, and uh, we're all fighting on the same side to try to keep things fair for everybody. So thank you for having me. Well, we're proud of you, Al J, and uh, I know that we're proud of you in Montgomery, too. Uh, one of our, our good Cloverdale native sons. Yes, sir. Uh, so still trying to hold it down over there in Cloverdale, even though you're gone. Um, well, thank you, everybody, for listening to this uh, episode of Ex Parte Communications. I am your good friend and host, Gavin King. I uh, works here in Montgomery down at Beasley Island. Uh, if you would, please do us a favor. Subscribe to the podcast. Uh, give us a share, a like, and even you can write us a review. Uh, that'll go a long way for helping our message here at the Alabama Association for Justice to get out. Thank you for listening. And until next time, y'all go get some justice. Mm-hmm.